Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Restaurant Brands International third quarter 2021 earnings conference call. All participants will be in a listen-only mode. Should you need assistance, please say no conference specialist by pressing the star key followed by zero. After today's presentation, there will be an opportunity to ask questions. To ask a question, you may press star and then one using your telephone keypads. You will hear a tone to confirm that you are in the question queue. To exit the question queue, you may press star and then two. Please note that all callers will be limited to one question. Please also note today's event is being recorded. At this time, I'd like to turn the conference call over to Stephen Lichtner, RBI's Head of Investor Relations. Please go ahead. Thank you, operator. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Restaurant Brands International's earnings call for the third quarter ended September 30th, 2021. As a reminder, a live broadcast of this call may be accessed through the Investor Relations webpage at investor.rbi.com and a recording will be available for replay. Joining me on the call today are Restaurant Brands International's CEO, Jose Sill, COO, Josh Kobza, and CFO, Matt Dunnigan. Today's earnings call contains forward-looking statements which are subject to various risks set forth in the press release issued this morning and in our SEC filings. In addition, this earnings call includes non-GAAP financial measures. Reconciliations of non-GAAP financial measures are included in the press release available on our website. Throughout the call today, we will be referencing two-year comparisons for system-wide sales growth and comparable sales to provide a cleaner indication of how the business is trending versus a more normalized period. These two-year comparisons are calculated on a geometric stacked basis by using the 2020 and 2021 disclosed growth metrics. And now I'll turn the call over to Jose. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us on today's call to discuss our third quarter of 2021. I hope everyone is doing well. Before I dive into our results for the quarter, I'd like to highlight an important milestone for our company. In 2020, we launched our Restaurant Brands for Good sustainability framework to address our food, the planet, and the people and communities we serve. During the quarter, we announced our goal to achieve a 50% reduction in greenhouse gases by 2030, which was approved by the Science-Based Targets Initiative, and reached net zero emissions by 2050 or sooner. These targets are a good example of the action-oriented approach we're taking to do our part to tackle climate change. The moment for action is now, and I'm personally extremely proud of the team's efforts so far, getting us started on this important journey. Beyond doing right by the planet, we believe we're doing right by our guests, employees, and shareholders, who we know increasingly value brands that take sustainability seriously. And this progress is really important because our value proposition starts with our brands, Tim Hortons, Burger King, and Popeyes, all of which generate resilient, growing, high-margin revenue streams through comparable sales growth and restaurant development, allowing us to reinvest in our business while also returning capital to shareholders. 
During the third quarter, we once again grew global comparable sales year over year, driven by worldwide growth at Tim Hortons and strong results from Burger King and Popeye's international business, which offset softer performance from Burger King and Popeye's home markets. As compared to 2019, our system-wide sales growth accelerated to 5% versus 4% in Q2, driven by positive overall comparable sales growth and continued progress in our development pipelines. With 264 net new restaurants delivered during the quarter, keeping us on track to return to 2018-2019 levels of growth this year. And looking ahead to 2022, based on our current pipeline, we believe we're well positioned to accelerate our net unit growth across all three brands and continue on our path to 40,000 restaurants. Our efficient operating model helps convert the system-wide sales growth to the bottom line, contributing to a robust free cash flow generation that provides significant optionality, allowing us to reinvest in the business and return capital to shareholders to do both dividends and open market share repurchases. We're making investments in key areas of the business, such as building in-house technology and digital teams that we believe position us to add value directly to our guests and improve restaurant operations, investing behind our marketing plan at Tim Hortons in Canada, accelerating the rollout of outdoor digital menu boards, and investing in our people, especially in areas like technology, operations, and marketing. We also returned roughly $240 million to our shareholders on October 5th in the form of a 53 cent per share quarterly dividend, once again, maintaining the highest payout ratio in our industry. In addition, since announcing our expanded $1 billion buyback program at the end of July, we've repurchased and retired approximately 2.8 million shares in open market transactions, totaling just over $180 million. These robust capital returns reflect the confidence we have in our brands, our view of our underlying intrinsic value, and our outlook for the business. Before I turn to our brand level performance, I'd like to hand it over to Josh to provide you with a more detailed update on our development framework, a key driver of our long-term growth prospects, then also share an update on technology. Josh? Thanks, Jose, and good morning, everyone. As Jose mentioned, we have big aspirations to grow our restaurant base towards our long-term goal of 40,000 locations, and we are confident we are well positioned to execute. We are fortunate to operate three iconic brands in some of the most attractive QSR categories. And within this landscape, we view ourselves as uniquely positioned to drive outsized growth. When we look at the unit count of our leading tiers by category in key international regions, we see notable opportunities with the most compelling in Asia Pacific, where taken together, our leading competitors have nearly 10 times the number of restaurants as we do. In addition, across EMEA, the leading peers have over three times the number of stores as us. And in Latin America and the Caribbean, they have more than double our footprint. And while this international runway is especially compelling, we also see growth opportunities closer to home in the US and Canada. Developing new restaurant business around the world is a key foundational strength of our team. And we are joined in our efforts by an exceptional network of master franchise partners who have the experience, local expertise, track record, and capital to invest. And while we do not take a one-size-fits-all approach with our partners, working with local entrepreneurs, established restaurant operators, as well as strategic and financial partners, we do look for a few common threads across all of them. We seek out partners who share our vision for building out our brands to their full potential in their markets, have the capital resources to do so, and have talented local management teams to execute on that vision. The success of our global development playbook is readily apparent when looking at Burger King's international growth, which includes a doubling of the brand's international store count since 2012 to nearly 12,000 locations 
and roughly 60% of the brand's worldwide system-wide sales. In multiple markets, China, France, Russia, the team effectively started from scratch, identified a strong local partner, entered into a long-term master franchise and development agreement, and created a robust business with a lasting presence and continued runway for growth. In fact, in these three markets alone, since 2012, we have built nearly 2,400 restaurants and created nearly $3 billion of annual system-wide sales. In Russia, for example, through a partnership with both a financial partner and a local entrepreneur, we've grown Burger King's store count from just a handful of restaurants in 2011 to nearly 800 today, almost matching the market leader. Despite this robust international development, Burger King still has only half the number of restaurants globally versus the leading competitor, including only a third of the number of restaurants in Asia Pacific, where we are building a strong foothold. As a result, we continue to see Burger King as a significant growth engine, and based on our current pipeline, we expect it to be the largest contributor to our net restaurant growth for the foreseeable future. We also expect the overall pace of our restaurant growth to benefit as we ramp up contributions from exciting master franchise relationships we've recently established for both Tim Hortons and Popeyes. At Tim Hortons, we are the undisputed leader in Canada. However, the brand remains significantly underpenetrated throughout the rest of the world. For example, we have just over 325 restaurants in Asia Pacific, which is a fraction of the leading competitors, approximately 10,500 stores. We've only just started scratching the surface with master franchise agreements in China, the UK, the Middle East, Mexico, and others contributing to our year-to-date unit growth of 188 restaurants, which includes by far the fastest pace of international growth the brand has ever achieved. And we are actively working towards development projects in new markets to add to our existing pipeline and accelerate growth for years to come. We feel confident that Tim Hortons brand can translate to markets all around the world, as has been demonstrated by our fast-paced growth in China, where as many of you know, we only started in January 2019 and already expect to have over 350 locations by the end of this year. And this growth is only expected to accelerate, with our partners driving a strong vision for the brand and aiming to propel Tim's China to over 2,700 restaurants by 2026. Finally, we see opportunities at Popeyes to grow all around the world, and this year alone have signed commitments to develop some of the most important QSR markets, such as the United Kingdom, India, Mexico, and Saudi Arabia, as well as expand our footprint in the U.S. and Canada, further enhancing our visibility into achieving our long-term unit growth aspirations. The opportunity in the U.S. is especially compelling for Popeyes. Our guest insights work shows the number one barrier to trial for the brand is convenience. And with 50% of guests driving more than 10 miles to reach one of our restaurants, we see adding new locations closer to our guests as a significant long-term opportunity. We are excited about the roadmap for Popeyes, with the brand on track to achieve record unit growth this year, driven by contributions from key markets including the U.S., Canada, Spain, and the Philippines and expected to further accelerate in 2022. Before handing it back to Jose, I also wanted to share some thoughts on our digital progress, and in particular, a few insights from key international markets. We've discussed how building out and investing behind our technology platforms is a key priority. And when we look at our most advanced digital markets internationally, which also happen to be some of our largest and fastest growing markets, we see just how important this is to driving digital sales. Our businesses in China and South Korea generate the vast majority of sales from digital channels, nearly 90%, with China in particular driving over 50% of sales from known diners. And in France, 
Spain, and Russia, over half of sales already come from digital channels. There are a few notable common threads across these markets. One, each has a strong loyalty program in place with easy in-store authentication capabilities. Two, each recognizes the merits of an omni-channel approach utilizing kiosks, mobile order and pay, delivery, and third-party partners to make it easy for guests to interact with the brand in their own way. Third, all quickly integrate new and emerging channels, including third-party delivery and social commerce, like WeChat and Kakao, to grow their customer base by ensuring the brand is present and has open communication channels wherever our guests are present. And finally, each has developed a simple and effective back-end infrastructure to scale quickly without creating complexity. These are just some of the learnings we're able to apply to our home markets, which we expect will follow the path of our more digital international markets over time. That's why we've been focused on ramping up enrollment in our loyalty programs, creating better digital experiences across service modes, including digitizing our drive-throughs, integrating with a growing number of platforms, and continuing to improve our back-end infrastructure. We've already seen some early success with the Tim Hortons app, which now counts over 10% of Canadians as monthly active users and has the highest usage among restaurant or food delivery apps in the market. While these initiatives take time and investment, especially in our large home markets, they're critical to the future of the business and will continue to be a key priority. With that, I'll hand it back to Jose. Thanks, Josh. Turning now to our brand performance. At Tim Hortons, we're encouraged by the progress we've seen in Canada, including generating five points of sequential quarter-over-quarter -quarter improvement in two-year comparable sales as government restrictions eased throughout July and August, and we continue to execute against our back-to-basics plan. This improvement has come from all provinces, with Quebec, Western, and Atlantic Canada showing low to mid-single-digit declines versus 2019 compared to mid and high single digits in the second quarter, and Ontario improving to high single-digit declines versus low teens last quarter. When we look at both restaurant format and urbanity, it's clear where the decline is concentrated. From an urbanity perspective, all urbanities, outside of superurban, which represents roughly 10% of our footprint, improved to single-digit declines versus 2019 with rural down low single digits and suburban and urban down mid single digits. And while superurban restaurants declined nearly 30%, they did see a seven point improvement versus the last quarter. And from a format perspective, drive-through restaurants are nearly flat versus 2019, while non-drive-throughs are still declining in the 20% zip code. That said, non-drive-through locations did see about a 10 point improvement this quarter versus the second quarter. Despite this positive momentum across regions, formats, and urbanities, with reopening plans paused across the vast majority of the country and workplace mobility still significantly behind pre-pandemic levels, we know we're not out of the woods yet, and neither our teams nor our restaurant owners are standing still. We're highly focused on continuing to execute our multi-year back-to-basics plan, which is centered around elevating core quality, innovating for growth, and modernizing the brand. The progress we've seen so far from our work has been encouraging. With the exception of hot beverages, all of our product categories are back to pre-pandemic levels or better. And it's also worth mentioning that despite the continued workplace mobility impacts on hot beverage occasions and sales, year to date, our brewed coffee market share is slightly above pre-pandemic levels. We believe this reflects benefits from the fundamental core quality work we've focused on around fresh brewers, water filtration, and our improved dark roast blend. The benefits of this focus on core quality also extend to breakfast, with breakfast foods outperforming pre-pandemic levels despite lapping 2019's very successful two-for-five 
hot breakfast sandwich promotion. This outperformance has been driven by a boost from the latest addition to our fresh cracked eggs platform, improved breakfast wraps. The team's dedication to innovating for growth is also paying off. As you know, last quarter we introduced new lines of cold beverages, including our cold brew and real fruit quenchers, and we saw them once again contribute positively to two-year comparable sales. We're also pleased to see these items, along with our fresh cracked eggs platform and improved baked goods, help drive the morning day part close to 2019 levels. As you know, the morning day part has historically been a significant percentage of our overall business, so it's encouraging to see progress here, even despite workplace mobility constraints. That said, as I mentioned earlier, we're not standing still waiting for mobility to return. We're pushing forward with a strong innovation pipeline to improve our presence in food-driven day parts like lunch and dinner. We've experienced promising results to date in our efforts with Cravables and our new and improved artisan sandwiches helping drive lunch ahead of pre-pandemic levels this quarter. And as we move forward in Q4 and into 2022, you'll see us continue to build off the credibility we've been establishing and drive further long-term growth opportunities in food-led day parts. We're also focused on our commitment to modernization, including building off our strong base of digital known diners and driving guest engagement through our Tim's Rewards loyalty program. This quarter, we kicked off our second Roll Up to Win campaign, which helped drive overall monthly known diners to an all-time high. We're particularly excited about this growth as it positions a team to learn more about our guests' wants and provide them with even more compelling offers and experiences to drive increases in check, traffic, and brand closeness. We're actively working together to further integrate Tim's Rewards into our drive throughs as well, which cover approximately 70% of our system, in addition to equipping our drive throughs with outdoor digital menu boards. We remain on track to complete substantially all of Tim Horn's North American outdoor digital menu board rollout by the end of this year. And finally, we remain committed to supporting our communities through important efforts like Camp Day and our Smile Cookie campaign. This quarter, we celebrated the 30th anniversary of Camp Day, one of the most exciting days of the year for our team and restaurant owners, who raised the record-breaking 12 million Canadian dollars for the Tim Hortons Foundation Camp. And in September, franchisees broke another record, this time for the 25th anniversary of our Smile Cookie campaign, raising another 12 million Canadian dollars for over 600 charities. I'm incredibly grateful to each and every one of our restaurant owners for their contributions, year in and year out. And I'd like to give a particular shout out to our Dunville, Ontario restaurant, which sold the most smile cookies for the fourth year in a row, selling roughly eight cookies for every resident in Dunville. We believe our investments in the Back to Basics plan and our community engagement are having a positive impact not only on our business, but also on our brand health. In fact, we once again saw a year-over-year -year improvement in brand health metrics across most categories, including food and coffee quality and taste, as well as overall brand connection. We're confident that the work we're doing together with our restaurant owners across our core platform, product and day part innovation, brand modernization, and community outreach will position Tim's well to not only recapture routines as mobility constraints subside, but also drive new guests, new occasions, and new opportunities for the brand in any environment. Turning now to Burger King, starting with the U.S. It's clear we're navigating a transition in the U.S., and this quarter's results reflect that. During the quarter, we saw a 1.6% decline in comparable sales at Burger King U.S., driven primarily by one, the underperformance of value offerings, and two, our intentional shift away from paper coupons. On value offerings, this quarter's core offers of BOGO plus $1, and two for six yielded a considerable year-over-year -year gap against last year's two for five, while also facing headwinds from competitor core discount offerings. 
And on paper coupons, we made a conscious decision to reduce our investment in this declining promotional channel that we've historically over-indexed relative to our peers. We know this decision will impact our results in the near term, but believe it's the right one as we focus on building more sustainable long-term sales through our digital platforms and by maximizing media firepower behind growing channels with increasingly tailored offerings for our guests. Taken together, these items contributed to our third quarter comparable sales decline, and with two of our big campaigns during the quarter, Chiking and Real Meals, unable to offset these headwinds, we saw a continued gap relative to our peers. We're keenly aware of this gap and are actively building an actionable long-term plan to address. We know we have an iconic brand with well-tenured, focused franchise operators, but we also see clear opportunities across operations, digital, menu, and image that can work together to reclaim market share and drive long-term sustainable growth. Executing on these opportunities starts with having the right people and right team in place. As you know, we appointed Tom Curtis as president of Burger King US and Canada in August, a proven QSR operator with 35 years experience as both a franchisee and senior executive. Tom has now spent most of the last two months visiting with franchisees across the US and zeroing in on our biggest operations opportunities in addition to gathering feedback on our menu, digital, and image programs. What's clear from his initial observations is that we have a great brand and assets to build from, but we need to double down on putting the guest experience at the center of all of our efforts. Tom and the team have been hard at work in partnership with our franchisees to build a focused plan to reclaim our market share and put us on track for long-term sustainable growth. While I'm not going to get into all the detail today, I'll share a few directional highlights on where we're headed. We know that the foundation of any restaurant business is exceptional, repeatable precision in operations. There are upstream impacts on great operations, like having a focused menu and creating platforms that can be executed consistently by our teams in well-designed kitchens with modern, efficient equipment. There are also important downstream indicators of great operations, including competitive drive-through times, order accuracy, and product and guest satisfaction scores. Our biggest areas of addressable opportunity are clear, and we're already at work on our plans to streamline our operations and drive superior guest service levels. An equally important component is creating an easy and seamless experience for both our team members and guests through digital platforms. We hit an important milestone this quarter with the nationwide in-store rollout of our Royal Perks loyalty program in September, and we've been pleased with the early results with nearly 80% of registered digital guests now having converted to Royal Perks. We're also actively working to integrate loyalty offers into our outdoor digital menu boards, which we continue to install across North America. We now have over 50% of Burger King drive-through restaurants equipped with outdoor digital menu boards and expect to exit 2021 with about 75% complete, nearing the 100% milestone by mid-2022. With nearly 80% of Burger King sales coming from drive-through, we believe this important initiative will drive significant long-term benefits for the overall business. Turning to our menu, we know we have the most loved QSR hamburger in America. All our data shows our Flame Grilled Whopper outperforms the hero product of our competitors, yet many of our burger promotions for the last few years have focused on sub-brands or extensions to our core rather than doubling down on our flagship hero product. More to come in our burger category strategy, but there's no doubt that the Whopper is very important to our long-term plans. On chicken, despite the modest initial performance of Chiking, we continue to believe in the platform. It's a great chicken sandwich and an important part of our core menu, but there's work to be done to build the platform to its full potential, including improving our communications, market positioning, and pricing. 
We also view breakfast as one of the most incremental menu and day part opportunities for the brand. We have a sizable existing breakfast business driven by Chrysanwich, but we see runway to expand by developing the menu offering at various price points, serving a good cup of coffee, leveraging our technology to nail speed of service and accuracy and deliver a more consistent and reliable experience and having a more thoughtful, consistent marketing and media investment plan. On value, you've heard me talk about the importance of everyday value and getting the mechanics right. For years, we've been spreading ourselves too thin across too many messages with mixed results. In fact, historically, we've consistently had the most value constructs in the market, three times as many as our lead competitors, which diluted our marketing firepower and added to operational complexity. It also confused guests. Our ongoing investments in data and analytics have given us a much clearer view of the media weight required to have both promotional and everyday value offers drive guest visits, and we're already working to address by focusing our efforts behind fewer, more impactful offers and value platforms. We're also thoughtfully developing our roadmap for image transformation of our restaurant portfolio. Our digital initiatives go hand in hand with this priority. We're closely examining ways to optimize the sales potential of our portfolio while maximizing the ROI for each franchisee. For example, in certain markets, the highest return on investment for a franchisee may be investing in our double drive-throughs rather than an extensive in-store dining room redesign. Each market, each store, and each partner is unique. And to that end, we're working with our franchisees to align on a more ambitious image transformation plan for the future. And finally, this brings us to the most important piece of driving long-term success, franchisee profitability, trust, and engagement. We can have a great strategy in place, but at the end of the day, the key to success will be how well we work together with our franchisees to execute the plan in their restaurants. Fortunately, Tom's candor and humility, his intense focus on simplification, guest experience, and profitability, and his track record of success as a former franchisee, in addition to the time he and the Burger King team have spent with franchisees on the road so far, has resulted in early support from our franchisees. As we look ahead, Q4 is all about finalizing and engaging the franchise system on the multi-year plan. And 2022 will be focused on implementing year one of that plan. We recognize that important long-term value creating change does not happen overnight. We're confident in our Burger King leadership, our brand, our team, and our incredible franchisees and their teams. And we look forward to sharing more with you in the coming quarters. Turning for a moment to international, a bright spot for the Burger King brand and a key driver of our long-term growth. As Josh highlighted, Burger King has a strong and growing presence internationally, generating about 60% of the brand's system-wide sales, up from roughly 45% in 2012. The brand has incredible global awareness and is improving its market positioning, including in Spain, which generates over a billion dollars in system-wide sales and recently hit an exciting milestone of becoming the most preferred QSR brand in the country. During the third quarter, Burger King's international business grew system-wide sales over 10% versus 2019, an acceleration from last quarter's 3% growth. This performance included sequential two-year comparable sales improvements in some of our largest markets, France, Spain, Germany, and Brazil, with France notably returning to pre-pandemic levels during the quarter and Germany generating nearly double-digit comparable sales growth versus 2019. And we saw double-digit comparable sales versus 2019 in key markets, including Australia, the UK, Russia, South Korea, and Japan. Given the diversity of our international business, it's difficult to pinpoint one or two key drivers of the overall comparable sales growth in the quarter. That said, we've noted a few highlights that we believe are contributing to growth in certain markets. For example, our plant-based products 
have proved to be an important sales driver in the UK, Germany, and the Netherlands, and continue to grow as we launch new products. Our digital sales have also notably improved with the international business now generating roughly 50% of sales from digital channels. We're pleased with the progress we continue to make internationally at Burger King, and as restrictions continue to ease, we're optimistic we'll continue to see a rebound in sales that, coupled with a robust development pipeline, we expect will drive long-term sustainable growth for the brand for years to come. Let's now turn to Popeyes. As Josh highlighted, we see a significant long-term growth opportunity for the Popeyes brand. This quarter, we grew two-year comparable sales nearly 15%, even despite lapping the August 2019 launch of our game-changing chicken sandwich. That said, on a year-over-year basis, U.S. comparable sales declined 4.5%, primarily driven by traffic declines and to a lesser extent, less effective impacts from the offers we had in the market. On traffic, ongoing labor challenges led to reduced service modes and operating hours, particularly in late night, as well as a temporary distribution center interruption in the Northeast. We're focused on working with our franchisees to alleviate the impact of these challenges in the future. And while in-restaurant staffing may take time to improve, we're well into the process of further diversifying our distribution network in the region to mitigate the impact of any future distribution center disruptions on our supply chains. Despite these headwinds, which drove the majority of the year-over-year decline, the brand continues to generate over $1.8 million in annualized sales per restaurant in the U.S. And Popeye's U.S. once again grew system-wide sales as success from the team's focus on strong development offset the decline in comparable sales. The team also remains committed to making progress across menu innovation and during the third quarter focused on two areas, nuggets and premium beverages. We launched Nuggets in July, adding a new long-term category to our menu and a convenient way to enjoy our delicious hand-breaded Louisiana chicken. While the launch of Nuggets has proved to be incremental to our business, attracting new guests and driving check, it was unable to offset the traffic headwinds we experienced during the quarter, and we know there is more we can do to enhance the performance of this important new category for us. For example, we know every great Nugget deserves a great sauce pairing, so we're focused on innovating in this key area introducing creative and delicious new sauces like our recently launched hottie sauce. Yes, you heard it right, in collaboration with Megan DeSallian. We're particularly excited about this collaboration as it not only introduces a new dipping sauce for our nuggets, but also innovates on our iconic chicken sandwich platform for the first time. On premium beverages, our recently launched lemonade platform drove beverage incidents to their highest levels since 2017. Beverages are a great driver of traffic and franchise profitability, and we think there's even more we can do here and are excited to keep building on the momentum that we've seen. We remain confident in the long-term outlook for the Popeyes brand as we continue to innovate across our menu and day parts, enhance the guest experience, and bring Popeyes to more guests around the U.S. and the world with our robust development pipeline. With that, I'd like to hand it over to Matt to take you through our financial and cash flow results for the quarter. Matt? Thanks, Jose, and good morning, everyone. This quarter, we made solid progress against many of our key priorities, and our results once again demonstrate the benefit of having a diversified and resilient business model. For the third quarter, our global system-wide sales grew 11% to $9.4 billion, and our adjusted EBITDA was up about 5% organically year-over-year to $607 million. While historically our growth in adjusted EBITDA year-over-year has been closer to our system-wide sales growth, there were a couple of factors that contributed to the difference in our consolidated growth rates this quarter. First, as we've highlighted on past calls, our continued proactive investments in people, digital, and technology 
has led to a sizable year-over-year increase in segment GNA. We expect that our core segment GNA will sequentially increase roughly $5 to $10 million in the fourth quarter, with fourth quarter levels establishing a reasonable baseline as we head into 2022. Additionally, our year-over-year growth this quarter reflects the fact that advertising expenses exceeded revenues by approximately $12 million more than they did in the third quarter of last year, resulting in an impact of negative two points to our EBITDA growth. This mostly reflects spending from our $80 million Canadian dollar commitment behind the Tim Hortons Canada Ad Fund, supporting our Back to Basics initiatives. And as of the end of Q3, we have deployed nearly 75% of these funds and expect to spend the remainder during Q4. Before turning to EPS, I'd like to quickly discuss two items that we know are top of mind. First, our supply chain business at Tim's in light of the current macroeconomic environment. And second, how to think about the impact of our robust international growth on our business. On supply chain, as you've heard from our peers and others outside our industry, we're seeing increased levels of inflation on the commodities and labor front. So we thought it would be helpful to include a brief update on our supply chain business at Tim's. With sales beginning to recover this year in Canada, we've seen margins bounce back relative to 2020 and hold a pretty consistent level on a year-to-date basis. We've been very encouraged to see this improvement. However, given the most recent market trends, we do expect margins to moderate slightly over the next couple of quarters as we navigate through this elevated volatility, monitor and adjust our pricing as appropriate, and ensure strong operations and service levels, all while keeping both our guests and our franchisees in mind, as always. On our international growth, you heard Jose and Josh mention the strong progress we've made restarting our global growth engine this year and the exciting opportunities we have to accelerate toward our 40,000 restaurant target. We see significant runway to continue scaling our international businesses, which are already strong contributors to our results, generating over 40% of our consolidated global system-wide sales. As a reminder, our international franchise partners typically localize supply chains and control their own real estate portfolios. Therefore, as we continue to rapidly expand in international markets, our primary source of incremental income will come from high-quality franchising revenues, with royalties tied to system-wide sales growth. Now turning to EPS, our third quarter adjusted earnings per share was $0.76, compared to $0.68 last year, representing a nominal increase of approximately 12%. Included in this increase is an FX tailwind of about 3%. The higher growth compared to our consolidated adjusted EBITDA growth of 5% year-over-year was mainly driven by lower net interest expense and a reduced share count from our repurchase activity, partially offset by higher adjusted effective tax rate and higher equity-based compensation. It's worth highlighting that equity-based compensation increased quarter over quarter to $25 million in Q3. Given the continued investments we've been making in our people throughout the year, we do expect this to ramp up a bit more in Q4. Turning to our capital structure, we manage a highly efficient and scalable business model with recurring and diversified income streams and strong conversion to cash flow. During the quarter, we generated nearly $490 million of free cash flow, enabling us to reinvest in our business while also following through on our commitment to return capital to shareholders through both dividends and share repurchases. As Jose mentioned, we've been actively buying back shares, utilizing our enhanced capital allocation flexibility from our $1 billion open market share repurchase authorization. During Q3, we repurchased and retired approximately 2.8 million shares of our common stock for over $180 million, 
leaving us with over $800 million still available under our current program. On October 5th, we also returned approximately $245 million to our shareholders through a 53 cent per share quarterly dividend. And we recently declared an additional dividend of 53 cents per common share and unit payable on January 5th, 2022, consistent with our previously announced target of $2.12 per share for 2021. Even with combined capital returns of over $425 million in the quarter, we also saw our net leverage decline further to 5.2 times. In addition, from a liquidity perspective, we continued to maintain very strong flexibility. Between our nearly $1.8 billion of cash and our $1 billion revolver, we have about $2.8 billion available to us. Looking ahead, our capital allocation priorities remain very consistent. Prudently maintain an efficient capital structure, invest back in the business through high impact organic opportunities, continue returning significant capital to shareholders through dividends and our expanded open market authorization, and evaluate accretive strategic opportunities. With that, I'd like to thank everyone again for your support and for joining us this morning. And we'll now open the line for questions. Operator? Ladies and gentlemen, at this time, we'll begin the question and answer session. To ask a question, you may press star and then one using a touchstone telephone. If you are using a speakerphone, we do ask that you please pick up your handset before pressing the keys to ensure the best sound quality. To withdraw your questions, you may press star and two. Once again, that is star and then one to ask a question. And as a reminder, we do ask that you please limit yourselves to a single question. Our first question today comes from Chris Carroll from RBC. Please go ahead with your question. Hi, good morning, and uh, thanks for the question. So uh, on Tim's Canada, I appreciate all the commentary around uh, regional and urban trends. Can you talk a little bit more about some of the other factors driving performance in Canada, you know, perhaps any insights on what the competitive environment has been like as mobility has improved? And curious about drive-through trends. I think you noted that drive-throughs were flat in the quarter. If I did hear that correctly, um, what do you see pushing drive-through trends into positive territory? Thanks. Hey, Chris, thanks so much for the, uh, for the question. Uh, yeah, if, if I may, I'm going to go into a little bit here because you, you asked a number of different components of, uh, of Tim's, Tim's Canada performance. So as you probably recall, last time we were together was in late July, and, and as of end of July, reopening was well underway in Canada, um, you know, and there was a, a, a lot of, uh, there was some momentum uh, in the market in terms of reopening big banks and other large employers in Toronto were expected to return to, to the off, to offices in uh, in Q4, and and this was the beginning um, of when we started to see some uh, some impact from from the Delta variant, just just making some noise. Uh, when you fast forward to the end of the summer, cases started to rise pretty significantly uh, throughout August, and reopening was uh, was paused, and we saw uh, uh, vaccine mandates uh, implemented and, and mask mandates uh, reintroduced, uh, which put further pressure on mobility and and uh, reopening. Um, which, as we all know, has lagged uh, in Canada versus the U.S. And we've seen urban centers uh, continue to take cautionary approaches. Uh, downtown Toronto, as an example, still not back to, um, to work, and urbanity remains the biggest drag uh, in, in our business in, uh, in Canada. Um, many of the large employers uh, have pushed back returns to office uh, to, to sometime in, in uh, 2022. Uh, in the quarter, we, we saw uh, a, a nice improvement in July and maintained that in August and September. 
uh, and we exited September similar to, uh, to July. And there's been no, no real material shift in trends to call out in October versus where we were in Q3. Um, so, so really that's where we stand today. There's a, a clear concentrated drag from urban and, and super urban um, uh, locations in, in our business there. Uh, and this is where lagging workplace mobility uh, most impacts our business, where we have high frequency, uh, relatively low check uh, guests, uh, the guest that buys that, that coffee uh, or two coffees on the way to work. Uh, all that said, despite these pressures from a mobility standpoint, we're improving quarter to quarter and getting back to where we were in 2019. Uh, for example, even with the drag in, in workplace mobility, uh, we've gotten uh, morning day part uh, to close to flat, driven uh, by our emphasis on quality enhancements uh, in our breakfast foods. And, and we're seeing sequential improvement in hot beverage. Uh, in other words, we're reducing the drag that, that we've seen uh, over the last 18 months. Um, and we see a, a, a really strong opportunity to continue to grow even if mobility doesn't come back fully. Uh, and as I mentioned in my prepared remarks, we're, we're not waiting around. We're protecting and enhancing the, the core offering while pursuing new opportunities uh, in food blood day parts like lunch and dinner, important day parts uh, that obviously are, are, are critical to uh, the, the industry. Um, in Canada, as an example, 60% uh, of overall industry sales are, are in, uh, in those day parts, and we we're about 35%. Um, so we under-index there, and we think it's a unique opportunity to, to increase share as we continue to develop uh, offerings and build off strong performers like Cravables. Uh, and we're, we're encouraged by these early results in, uh, in lunch, uh, which is why we're, we're continuing to push on that, and, and we've built on it uh, during the fall with, uh, with our freshly uh, grilled wraps. Um, probably the, the, the day part that has the, the biggest uh, opportunity is, is dinner, um, which is still behind pre-pandemic levels, uh, down um, a bit there. And, uh, and but as we look at the offerings that we're developing with artisan sandwiches and the wraps and others, uh, we think there's a there's a path to uh, to get back to pre-pandemic levels and, and then and then growing from there, um, which uh, which is a an exciting long-term opportunity for for the business. Um, where we think. Uh, we need to focus on, is, is, as, as I mentioned, is, is, is to succeed in lunch and dinner. Uh, we need to drive food and beverage uh, offerings uh, that, that make sense and pair well with, uh, with food during those day parts, uh, which is what led to uh, some of the innovation in, in cold beverage, uh, supporting our, our, um, our, our uh, new food platforms as well all, all year long. So kind of summarizing uh, where we are from a, a day part perspective, two-year sales outside of, of dinner and late night are roughly fl flat to above where we were uh, in 2019. Um, and, and one of the important data points is, you know, given the pandemic and the impact on the business, we had been working with our franchise partners and, and owners in Canada, uh, reducing, and in some cases, um, closing uh, late night uh, in order to, to address um, you know, the, the reduced mobility in the market uh, throughout the pandemic. And, and we're now just in, in Q4 beginning to reopen late, later night hours for, for a big uh, component of the Tim Canada system. Um, I think as it relates to uh, drive-through, you mentioned that, um, we, we saw obviously a pretty significant growth in drive-through during um, COVID. Uh, drive-through is an important channel. We have about 2,600 plus locations in Canada, which is more than 1,000 than any of our closest competitor. Um, and, uh, and we've seen uh, morning day part roughly flat, as I, as I mentioned, to 2019 levels at drive-through enabled uh, locations. Morning is outperforming uh, pre-pandemic levels um, uh, on average, uh, which shows the overall uh, 
long-term value of drive-throughs, which is one of the reasons why we've invested significantly in our drive-throughs to, to modernize that experience with, uh, with the outdoor digital menu boards uh, and loyalty integrations, which are taking place as, uh, as we speak. Um, I think investments, the, the other piece I'd highlight here is that investments in our digital capabilities are, are, are really continuing to, uh, to add uh, to the experience and, and to the, the sales in, in the business in Canada. Uh, we've got the number one QSR app uh, in Canada. Um, uh, Tim's Rewards is driving traffic check and, and beginning to contribute uh, to sales, and, uh, and that strong relationship with our guests uh, is allowing us to, to uh, engage them and drive more frequency and, and, uh, and check as well. And then the final comment I'd make is, is on the, um, the ad fund uh, contributions that I mentioned uh, back at the beginning of the year. Um, we, we had mentioned a, a 80 million Canadian contribution. We, we're probably about three quarters of the way through that uh, contribution uh, in 2021. Um, and, uh, and just as a reminder, uh, franchisees will, will um, on an ongoing basis, uh, increase their contributions to the advertising fund by 50 basis points. Uh, we're, we're confident uh, in the plan that we have. We're, we're encouraged by the progress we're making so far. Uh, we've seen improvements in, uh, in addition to the sales uh, and day part and, and format improvements that I mentioned. We've also seen improvements in our brand health metrics, including brand connection. So, you know, obviously lots of work to do, but, but we're encouraged by the progress we're making and look forward to keeping you posted on, on, uh, on how we, we evolve. Thanks Great. so much. Thank you. Our next question comes from Dennis Geiger from UBS. Please go ahead with your question. Great. Thanks for the question. Jose, I, I wanted to ask a bit about some of the key pressures impacting franchisees and, and really the industry in particular in recent months, I, I guess across brands, you know, be it staffing issues, labor pressures, commodity pressures, et cetera. What kind of impact are, are, are the franchisees and the system broadly seeing from these pressures? How's the system managing these pressures and kind of thinking about managing them going forward? I know you spoke to some of this with, with the Popeye's DC issue and the Tim Hortons supply chain, but, but even more broadly curious, the, the impacts. And then just as it relates to potential implications that you could speak to maybe from these impacts, be it you know, demand, new open demand in, in any way, uh, potential franchisor investment support, anything just on, on the go forward as we think about uh, the environment right now. Thank you. All right. Uh, thanks, Dennis. Uh, I'll, I'll take the, um, uh, the labor uh, impacts, I think, uh, the broad, broadly speaking, and I'll, I'll pass it over to Matt to touch a little bit more on kind of, you know, broadly speaking, inflation impacts in the business. And then I'll, I'll, uh, I'll wrap it up uh, on your uh, uh, three-part one question. I'll wrap it up on the, uh, on, on the uh, development um, front and what impact we're seeing on, on that end. Um, but as I called, as I mentioned in the in the prepared remarks, uh, obviously labor challenges are, are impacting the entire industry, and, and not just the restaurant industry, but but broadly speaking, uh, in, through through retail and other other businesses as well, shipping, etc. We called out the impact specifically at Popeyes because it was where we felt it most uh, acutely. Um, we, we saw it in the context of, of reduced operating hours uh, and service modes, especially around late night. Uh, and we also saw some impacts in, in our distribution centers, uh, in particular uh, in the Northeast. Um, on operating hours, we, we saw a, about an average uh, of a uh, one-hour reduction in, in operating hours at, at, at Popeyes um, during this quarter relative to pre-pandemic levels, um, which obviously has an impact. And that, that was disproportionately uh, impacting our late-night business, um, which historically 
um, over indexes in family and, and you know, which comes along with a, a pretty high check. Um, you know, outside of, uh, of late night, we saw uh, daily sales improving in, uh, you know, it, it either flat or improving uh, modestly uh, throughout the quarter. Um, so the, the, the real drag and the, and the real impact from a labor standpoint wasn't the <coughs> late night um, uh, day part. And on service modes, um, we're, we're seeing um, you know, nearly 40% of the system operating with reduced service modes, either, either drive-through delivery and, and takeout only or, or drive-through and, and delivery only, which, which means you know, our dining rooms are generally uh, have been closed in many cases uh, because of some of these uh, staffing challenges that we're, we're facing that are, that are kind of near-term challenges for, for the system. Uh, and then on the D.C. side, um, you know, we, we saw an impact to roughly 10% of the stores uh, with, with this uh, Northeast Distribution Center disruption. Um, and one of the things that our team, alongside our, our uh, purchasing cooperative for, for Popeyes, has, has been doing, purchasing a distribution cooperative, uh, they've been uh, working on uh, diversifying the distribution network, and, and we expect to, to complete that transition uh, later this quarter. Um, you know, I, I think this is a, a challenge that all brands uh, here in North America are facing, but 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 as I mentioned uh, at the beginning of my of my response here, uh, it's a it's a challenge that's that's been felt most acutely uh, with the uh, the Popeyes business in the U.S. and and something we're working closely with our franchise partners to address. Um, we've created um, uh, uh, you know working teams to address to to share best practices. Uh, there's some uh, really good operators that have done amazing work already in uh, in creating. Uh, job fairs and, and pipelines of, of folks coming into their restaurants and staffing up well. Uh, so we're, we're sharing those practices and we're also leveraging technology and streamlining operations wherever possible to make uh, this transition and this, uh, this um, challenging moment uh, be more um, kind of uh, be friendlier to operations to allow for staffing levels to, to get to, to the places we need them to get to to drive uh, growth in the business. And with that, I'll pass it over to, to Matt to touch on, on some of the other um, uh, impacts that we're seeing in the near term. Yeah, thanks, Jose. Hey, Dennis, good morning. Thanks for the question. Um, yeah, I think, you know, as it relates to inflation, you know, I, I think we're fortunate to have come out of 2020, generally speaking, across our brands, you know, with strong profitability. Uh, that said, you know, as Jose touched on, you know, I think there's headwinds for us to work through in staffing and wages and, and general inflation. And so, you know, the approach we've taken is, is to work side by side with our franchisees to, to address as best we can and manage through, you know, this, this tougher cost environment. You know, I'd say uh, pricing is definitely in the conversation. We've, we've taken pricing this year, generally in line with inflation in the U.S., um, and we'll continue to take a really hard look at, at where we go from here uh, moving forward. You know, on mix, um, we can and have looked at low margin, low traffic items with franchisees. Uh, and, you know, in addition to that, on the commodity front, I think, you know, I would say that procurement is a, is a really big focus for us. You know, we think that scale is an important advantage uh, when you consider sourcing of different products, um, you know, around the world, across the brands, and, and we think our system benefits from that in terms of our scale with each of the three brands. Um, and on, on the labor front, you know, we're looking at ways we can simplify life in the restaurants, looking at processes, looking at simplifying <clears throat> the menu. And, and so, you know, we think there's a, a number of uh, things that we're working on here to address the pressure that we're seeing with our franchisees. Um, but overall, the number one thing we can do, we think, is, is to drive traffic and address our, address our guest needs and, and drive sales. Um, maybe the other, you know, just really quickly, uh, the, other, you know, the other point I would touch on is the com you know, comments I made about, um, you know, the Tim Horton supply chain. You know, I'd say that we're, 
we're encouraged by the progress that we've seen in the Tim's Canada business in terms of our sales recovery, in terms of our margin improvements year over year versus 2020. Um, historically, we haven't given guidance on margins. Um, however, given the, you know, the recent volatility around inflation that we've seen, um, we thought some you know, directional color uh, would be helpful. You know, so as I mentioned in the prepared remarks, uh, we expect margins to moderate slightly from, from where we were in Q3. Um, you know, we have some time to go here in Q4, but, but based on what we see currently, you know, we think the margin, margin impact directionally could look like approximately 50 basis points versus uh, the Q3 levels. Uh, and of course, we'll be managing um, very closely across across all fronts over the next few months to to navigate through through the environment here. Uh, so I'll pass it back to Jose on uh, on development. Yeah, and, and on, uh, thanks, Matt. And on on development, um, obviously there's constraints in in uh, certain markets related to labor and, and supply chain, but uh, we've got a really strong network of of uh, equipment suppliers. We're, our teams are working closely with them. Our franchisees are as well. Uh, and, uh, and and we, we expect, as, as we've said um, uh, several times over the last quarters, uh, we, we, we're excited about the pipeline. We're encouraged by the progress we're making. We think we're going to be at um, you know at or near levels of uh, of 2018, 2019 uh, unit growth in 2021, and we're we're confident we can accelerate in, in the years to come uh, with the quality of the, the partners that we have. Uh, the the, the amazing white space that exists around the world and even here in the U.S. and Canada, um, and uh, look forward to, to updating you on that progress in the coming quarters. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. Our next question comes from John Glass from Morgan Stanley. Please go ahead with your question. Thank you and good morning. Jose, um, on Burger King U.S., uh, two questions. One specifically, what, what's the impact of removing the paper coupons, if there's a way to sort of isolate that so we understand that impact? And then more broadly, you outlined a number of pieces that you want to work on, you know, and it had to do with menu and the brand and maybe even some equipment. What are the couple of things that we should watch for the next couple of quarters? What are the immediate action steps that might be able to bend the trend? Or should we think about this as a, a longer-term project such that, you know, none of these probably impact near-term but are, are all good longer-term? Thanks. Thanks, John. Uh, on on paper coupons, uh, as I mentioned in, in my re, uh, prepared remarks, we we tend historically Burger King in the U.S. Uh, over indexes in, in paper coupons relative to peers, uh, something in the neighborhood of three times the number of coupons compared to most of our peers. It's been uh, traditionally an important channel, but the effectiveness uh, has eroded a bit over time, um, especially um, with, with younger uh, consumers. And so we felt and we do feel it makes sense uh, to transition uh, media allocation and, and kind of the focus to other consumer-facing channels that we believe um, over time uh, will, will generate higher return, um, ideally uh, compensating uh, by finding new long-term sustainable platforms, especially as it relates to digital. Um, this is what uh, Royal Perks is designed to do, shifting our digital media or digital offers with, uh, to, to known diners, helping us engage them uh, better uh, and drive guest behavior and, and ultimately build a strong base with uh, with the younger uh, generation. Um, I, I, as it relates to, to the impact, we, we haven't um, kind of communicated the details of that, but it, it, uh, we, we believe we'll be able to shift um, uh, very quickly uh, with the growing um, Royal Perks platform that we have and, and, and some of our digital offers that are available. Um, we, we believe we'll be able to shift to, to a, a much more um, accretive uh, digital uh, coupon and, and digital engagement um, uh, program uh, over time. 
Now, as, as it relates to the Burger King uh, plan overall, as I, as I mentioned last quarter and mentioned in my prepared remarks, uh, the, the, the key was uh, focus, pace, and, and building our, our team. We saw that we, we had done some good work uh, with with, Pop, with uh, Burger King and, uh, in the U.S. on uh, you know from time to time, but we haven't hadn't been consistent, and so we we tapped Tom and I mentioned that um, uh, in, in in recent um, uh, communications, we tapped Tom to lead the, the BK U.S. business, working with franchisees uh, now and, and building his team and, and bringing a more disciplined kind of analytical rigor and focus to the business. Um, the, the the focus now is is working through the details of, of the framework and the plan. Uh, which I which I laid out in in uh, with some uh, broad headlines um, uh, operations digital um, menu uh, work and and image uh, I, I think the the, the big area they're all big areas to to work on and and these are um, uh, plans and, and initiatives uh, that, that we're developing in partnership with our franchise uh, uh, system in the U.S. Um, we don't we don't see. Uh, and we don't uh, have a timeline on this. The most important thing is that we, we do the right work with our franchisees. Uh, I think the, a big uh, element of the plan for the U.S. is around um, execution and, and being much more consistent uh, on, on that front. I think that we've, we've been working on, and Tom's brought a lot of discipline around um, simplification uh, of the menu, uh, building standardization, um, bringing some equipment uh, uh, changes in the back of house, uh, to help with accuracy, um, we've also started to, to uh, uh, throughout the year, we've, we've been making uh, investments in our field organization, um, which we believe will be a key part to to drive uh, the business forward uh, in, in partnership with our franchisees. Digital uh, remains a big opportunity for for the BK system. Uh, we've we've already started to put in place um, the the obviously the app's been in place for a while. Royal perks on, on loyalty, um, the ability to personalize offers and drive uh, behavior uh, with our CRM, uh, and outdoor digital, digital menu boards making uh, the, the experience in the drive-through much more digital and, and much more personalized. Um, on the menu front, uh, being able to to focus on some of these core platforms in, in burger, uh, chicken, and value, as as I touched on in my um, in my prepared remarks, and uh, really moving away from promotional uh, in and out, and, and, and kind of and which dilutes the message and dilutes our advertising firepower, um, allowing us to uh, to really drive um, growth in, in kind of the core uh, of our of our business. Uh, I mentioned before uh, and touched on briefly uh, that the importance of, of breakfast and and that being a long term driver of growth in that in that day part, and then finally on the image front, um, be, being able to continue the, the work we're doing on drive-through uh, and enhancing that experience. Um, and then also working with our partners, our franchise partners, to, uh, uh, to drive uh, an acceleration of renovations uh, where the opportunity um, to, to drive growth and, and good returns uh, exists best. Um, Q3 was a transition. Q4 is where we're launching our multi-year plan, and, uh, and 2022 is, um, is year one of, of execution. Uh, and, and we're excited about the work we're doing, and we're, we're excited about the, um, the engagement we have with the franchise system, and uh, we'll keep you posted on our progress there. Thank you. Thanks so much. Our next question comes from John Tower from Wells Fargo. Please go ahead with your question. Oh, great. I think you answered much of it in the last question. But just in, in terms of following up on the BKUS, would you pull a, a similar lever potentially as you did with Tim Hortons in Canada and, and use some of the 
restaurant brands capital to, to pour into the marketing programs of BK US, assuming the franchisees are aligned with, with that sort of message? Uh, John, thanks for the question. Uh, look, I, I think the first uh, level of investment that we've been making is, is building out a strong leadership team, and we've been doing that um, now at, at, uh, at Burger King, similar to what we did at Tim Hortons. Um, we've added, um, uh, obviously, Tom's uh, been named to, to run the business. Uh, we've, we've bolstered the team with an industry veteran in, in data science and analytics. Um, we've uh, we brought in a, a culinary um, the lead as well as chef to, uh, to drive the, the BK innovation. Um, these are critical roles to ensure we have the, the interest of our guests uh, front and center as well as, well as the, those of our franchisees. Um, and we, as I mentioned uh, in response to, uh, to the earlier question, um, we've increased presence and coverage in the field, which we think is critical here uh, on, on, a, on the capital front. We already invest um, in, in the business from a remodel standpoint uh, here in the U.S. and um, you know, we obviously are working in, in, in the early days on how we can accelerate that um, in partnership with, uh, with the franchise system. Um, and, you know, as it relates to uh, the ad fund, we're, we're early days here on building out the, uh, the BK US plan. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, the most important thing is to have a, a solid plan that our franchisees uh, support and, and can drive traffic and, and sales. And, and we'll continue to use the same discipline that we've had from a capital allocation standpoint uh, to drive the most uh, significant impact on the business and, and ultimately the, the, the biggest impact long-term on shareholder returns. Thanks so much for the question. Our next question comes from Brian Mullen from Deutsche Bank. Please go ahead with your question. Thank you. Uh, question on Tim's. Uh, you shared a stat that 10% of Canadians are now monthly active users in the loyalty program. That's, that's encouraging to hear. Just big picture, do you, do you think you're now at a place with the program where it's ready to be a meaningful transaction sales driver when the Canadian economy is, is truly and fully reopening, reopen? And, you know, if, if yes, is there a scenario where the benefits could prove to be multi-year in nature? Just any thoughts on your degree of optimism here as, as the country emerges from COVID would be helpful to hear. Yeah, Brian, it's, it's Josh, and thanks for the question. Um, as we uh, as we mentioned a little bit earlier, and I think um, you, you mentioned a moment ago, we've been really pleased with the, the work that the TIMS team has done on, on the mobile app and more broadly on the TIMS Reward program. And we launched it a, a couple of years ago, and, and it's evolved in a really positive way that I think has led so many of, of our guests and so many Canadians to want to engage with it. I think we're, we're really excited about how many monthly active users we have but also about the kind of the frequency with which people engage with the app. It's not just that they use it once a month, but they use it in, in most cases many times a week. And I think that level of engagement, of engagement in, an, in a mobile app is something that's really special kind of anywhere in, in, uh, in the restaurant world. So we think we have something really great there. I think the team has built that by creating a really seamless experience at the restaurant, but also through creating other exciting avenues for engagement by making things like contests such as Roll Up to Win, fully digital, taking, taking really bold steps um, and executing them really well and making those experiences really positive. So we're, we're really pleased with it. We think it is uh, an exciting avenue to be able to, to drive greater engage, engagement with the brand and ultimately drive sales over the medium to, to long term. And we, uh, we see it as a big asset for, for the business um, and something that, that we're very excited about the prospects for uh, over the long term. Thank you. Our next question comes from Lauren Silverman from Credit Suisse. Please go ahead with your question. 
Thank you for the question. Appreciate all the commentary on development. Tim Hortons International, another nice quarter of unit growth. You've talked about the significant opportunity in China. What have you learned about expanding internationally with Tim Hortons China that you can leverage to expand in other international markets? And then how are you thinking about the development opportunities for Tim Hortons in Canada? Um, Lauren, thanks for the question. Yeah, we, we've uh, given some color over the last few quarters on, on Tim's China, uh, which we're excited about. It, it, I think the most important piece is the, the great work that the team there has done uh, to build a, a business and a brand and, and, and a product offering that, that really connects and engages with, with the consumers in China. Uh, the digital offering is, is pretty, uh, uh, is pretty uh, uh, exciting and has, has done a great job of engaging consumers in-store and also uh, from a, a pre-order and payment standpoint. Um, what, what gives us confidence in, in, um, in the opportunity uh, in China and more broadly uh, globally um, outside of Canada is, is, the, is, the, is the fact that our beverages uh, uh, connect well uh, and really travel well across um, across many markets. Um, we've seen um, that the expanded beverage offering, including cold beverages and specialty um, uh, beverages, work really well. And 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 then we've worked closely with our partners to localize uh, the food offering to make it relevant for consumers there. Um, we've we've seen some progress. Um, actually, I'm heading out to to Mexico later today to go visit uh, our Tim Hortons business in in Monterrey. Uh, Mexico, which is is growing and, and performing well, um, we've uh, uh, we've got uh, a great business in uh, for Tim's in, in the UK uh, with a, a, a very a different offering than what we see in China. It's drive-throughs. It's very similar in in terms of uh, uh, scale at the restaurant and offering to what we see in can in in our Canadian business. Um, so there's a lot of um, of exciting opportunities there, um, and we we believe that we're just at the at the beginning of the journey internationally for Tim's. Um, uh, coffee's a fast-growing segment internationally, especially in Asia, but also in, in Europe and other markets uh, around the globe. Uh, we've got a great coffee offering. We've got um, a, a strong heritage um, with, with, the co with, with Tim Hortons, and our price points are, are really uh, accessible. So we're, we're, and our digital capabilities are growing and, and really helping uh, engage our consumers there. So we're excited about the, uh, the, the growth prospects there. As it relates to, to Tim's in Canada, um, we obviously have a, a strong presence all, all around. There's, there's certain parts of, of the country um, where we think we have uh, uh, quite a bit of room for growth. We think uh, continuing to expand our, our uh, drive-through uh, capabilities in certain areas uh, is, uh, is, is a good opportunity for development, and we'll continue to, um, to infill and optimize the, uh, the portfolio where we think uh, we can uh, provide better service uh, and better accessibility to our guests using our digital uh, platforms, our, our, our um, uh, drive-through platform, and, um, and other uh, off-premise and, uh, and kind of uh, uh, convenient ways to, to connect with the brand. Thanks so much for the question. I think Josh has one more comment on this. Yeah, Lauren, if I can just add one, uh, one or two things to what Jose said on, on the international side. I think one of, the, one of the great things that David and the international team have, have done with, uh, with the Tim Hortons business across the globe is they've figured out how to adapt the business to each of the, the markets in a, in a unique way, whether that's uh, formats that are a little bit larger format drive-through in places like the UK, or some smaller format, but very drive-through oriented in Mexico, or the formats that we have in China. But the thing that, that's 
uh, or the Middle East for that matter, the thing that's, uh, that's common across those is that we've been able to, to achieve some really remarkable payback periods across all of those geographies. And I think that's what has our international team um, uh, getting more and more excited about Tim Hortons and our ability to adapt it and create a really compelling investment proposition for franchisees all across the globe uh, with the brand. Um, so I think our team has done a, a really wonderful job with that and, uh, and we're all uh, pretty pleased with it. Great, thank you guys. And ladies and gentlemen, our final question for this morning comes from David Palmer from Evercore ISI. Please go ahead with your question. Thanks, uh, thanks for squeezing me in in great detail on the call. Uh, two quick ones. Uh, could you touch on the percentage of dining rooms closed or hours of operation uh, reduction that you're seeing for Burger King US and, and Tim's Canada? A any numbers would be helpful. Um, obviously, those will hopefully get reopened and those hours restored. And then it was good to see the two-year acceleration for Burger King International. Where, where was the greatest improvement uh, as you look around the, uh, the world? Thanks. Thanks, David. Um, on on the dining rooms closed uh, and, and hours of operation, it's a it's pretty it's been volatile, especially uh, with uh, with Popeyes. Um, we've seen a little bit of of, uh, of that happening as well with, with Burger King and Tim's. Um, so the, the the numbers in terms of dining rooms closed um, kind of uh, fluctuates a bit, um, and given the, the circumstances in in certain markets, we've seen vaccination. Uh, requirements um, uh, take hold, and so that that's impacted as well our, our dining room business. Uh, but but overall, uh, as I mentioned with uh, with Popeyes, we've seen some uh, some impacts, uh, some significant impacts in uh, in late night mostly uh, and dinner day parts uh, from from the from the labor uh, shortages and some of the uh, the staffing challenges that uh, that we face. And, and as it relates. Uh, to Burger King International, we're we're, um, we're very excited about the, the progress we made, especially in this quarter, relative to um, to last year and, and to 2019, uh, where we've seen that the the progress is pretty uh, widespread, uh, and uh, and that's what's exciting about the opportunity uh, in our business there and the, and the work that the team uh, is doing with our master franchisees. Uh, thanks again uh, for for the question, uh, David, and, and for everyone else. Uh, and thanks for joining us this morning. We've made quite a bit of progress uh, executing on a number of our key priorities, including accelerating our development pipeline. And we also know there's more work to be done to accelerate our growth and drive our brands to their full potential. I'm incredibly grateful to our team and our franchisees for their hard work day in and day out. They remain focused on elevating the guest experience, accelerating our restaurant development, and driving long-term sustainable growth for our business and our shareholders. Thank you again for joining us, and have a great day. Ladies and gentlemen, with that, we'll conclude today's conference call. We do thank you for attending. You may now disconnect your lines. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.